0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the TM288 Historical Theology 2 podcast. This is a week that we normally spend on campus reflecting on what we've learned not only from Historical Theology 2, but from an entire year of reflecting on the history of Christian thought in the context of the history of the development of Christian institutions, practices, and divisions, unfortunately, However, with our shift to online learning, we obviously won't have the typical reflection time that we often do. Hopefully, some of you will be available for our final Zoom, but even there, I imagine that much of our time will be focused on answering questions uh, pertaining to the final exam. So um, with that, I'm unfortunately only going to be able to share with you some of my take-home lessons this week, and then the second podcast for this week will actually be review content for the exam. So I put together a PowerPoint, so that's 8.1, Lessons from Christian History, and these are some lessons that I would actually draw from the entire scope of our year in 287 and 288. So sorry for Tori, you missed part of this. Uh, A few of these won't be quite as clear from the start, Um, but hopefully uh, next time around you'll understand more once you take that first semester. Anyway... uh, Eight Lessons from Christian History. The first one I think we can draw is the lesson that while Christian cooperation with the state does bear great potential, in many ways it carries greater risk. We saw very early with the conversion of Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor, that a lot of opportunities opened up for the church. Uh, Constantine funded the transcription and copying of various Bibles, the construction of various churches. Uh, Excellent news for Christians of the time, he ended persecution and eventually provided political opportunities for bishops to hear local court cases. Uh, Not in a later corrupt manner where many church offices would be uh, sullied by focusing too heavily on political affairs, but because Constantine genuinely believed that Christian bishops in various cities were more likely to be honest than various secular figures or pagan figures who might be promoted into the court. Constantine intended to do well, and yet we saw there were many unintended and negative consequences by linking church and state so thoroughly. For example, uh, it became possible for there to be conversions for social purposes, cultural Christianity became far more prevalent because of the benefits of being seen to share the same religion as the emperor. It would create political opportunities, such as the opportunity to hear court cases that was afforded to priests and bishops. Beyond this, the increasing number of conversions caused Christians in the time to need to diminish their emphasis on catechism of new converts. What had once been a several-year process, which included intensive discipleship, moral training and evaluation, uh, and training in theology, gradually declined until we reach a state in the Middle Ages where many members of the Church failed to understand basic truths of the faith, prompting the occasion for the Reformation. One more decline that occurs with the conversion of Constantine is the shift of Christians away from what had traditionally been a relative consensus toward pacifism, that violence had no place for Christians, to an acceptance of the theories of just war. Now, in principle, if you take me in Christian ethics, I actually accept the possibility of a just war and believe that there can be ethical wars. And yet, in practice, what this often meant for Christians is finding ways to justify wars that were, in fact, more in favor of the state uh, than in line with what principles God would have us enact. And we see the full fruits of this with the wars of religion in the 1600s where thousands upon thousands died and even more were displaced as refugees over theological disputes in a manner that laid some of the groundwork for the eventual secularization of Europe as the conflicts between Christians were seen to be evidence of the lack of a true God behind Christianity. Christian cooperation with the state could be a good thing in theory, but in practice it has often been quite problematic. A second lesson I think we can learn from the history of Christianity is that philosophy can greatly aid theology when it takes the form of faith-seeking understanding. This idea of faith-seeking understanding comes from Historical Theology 1, where we looked at Anselm of Canterbury and his idea that we begin with the principles of faith and then use reason in the effort to understand those principles. Anselm and many theologians before and after him were quite successful in using the tools of reason and philosophy to attain a greater understanding of the Bible. However, particularly in historical theology, too, we have seen some examples of individuals who have attempted to use reason to the exclusion of Scripture. Unfortunately, one of our cut days due to the extended spring break would consider the phenomenon of rationalism where this is most obvious, but we have seen, in my opinion, some similar fruit in the emergence of Protestant liberalism. However positive its apologetic intents were, in many respects, I believe that its over-reliance on reason has caused serious problem. And I mentioned briefly the neo-orthodox response to liberalism's union in many instances with the Nazis in Germany. We have to be very careful when using reason even though the use of reason can be quite beneficial. A third lesson, I believe, is that the great tradition, as we might call it, that is instrumental in and preserved by the seven ecumenical councils, is foundational for the life and teachings of the church. Far too often, I have found that Christians are unaware of the basic ideas of the Council of Nicaea and the Trinity, or the ideas of the doctrine of the hypostatic union at the Council of Chalcedon, or later development at the Second or Third Council of Constantinople, for example. And it's fine if members in the pew can't name those councils or those key figures, but the ideas that were present in these councils are preserved in later theological developments, in the doctrine of the Atonement, in the doctrine of God, and in many other areas of Christian theology. If clergy are unaware of these traditional elements, then they will wind up with imbalanced theologies where their doctrine of God may not be logically consistent with their doctrine of the atonement. For those more rational uh, and philosophical oriented members of the pew, uh, these inconsistencies may be discovered and may be the occasion for individuals to leave the church. More than that, even if the inconsistencies are not discovered, I believe that our God is a rational God. He is a God who is the very truth itself. And so therefore, if there is an inconsistency, we must in some respect be teaching something false, for which we would face more serious consequences, the New Testament teaches. Fourth lesson, the church should always center grace, but in a manner that does not dismiss human responsibility. I have a picture on this slide of Martin Luther, who had argued compellingly, in my opinion, for the doctrine of sola gratia, grace alone. Even if you're more inclined to agree with the Catholic interpretation of the doctrine of justification, we can at least admit that Luther's challenge resulted in the rejection of the Via Moderna, which insisted that human effort preceded God's grace. We need an account of God's grace that ensures that salvation is in fact a gift and not something earned. If we are unable to explain that to the congregations where we serve, or on the mission field, or in the curriculum that we write, then we will wind up placing a burden on people, the burden of legalism, which seeks uh, by their individual's own merits to achieve heaven, something that is quite impossible according to the Bible. And yet at the same time, Our explanation of grace cannot dismiss human responsibility. One of the biggest challenges that we saw from the Catholic Church toward early Protestants during the Reformation was the accusation that the doctrine of sola fide and sola gratia would lead to Christians who had no concern for the moral life. And I'm sorry to say that in history there have been Protestants who have taken that approach, some intentionally and some accidentally. Reformers like Calvin were quite concerned to show that you cannot have justification without sanctification, without this process of becoming increasingly holy. And we would do well in our own ministries as we are centering grace to ensure that we can explain grace in a manner that preserves human responsibility. We saw a similar emphasis here in our exploration of the doctrine of predestination. The Reformed were quite concerned to defend the graciousness of salvation, so that we were not even elected based on anything that we did, including our choice to believe. And yet, in so doing, they were careful, through distinctions in the divine will, to ensure that God was not the one who was responsible for sin. And where superlapsarians struggled to articulate this clearly, they created an occasion for Arminians to split off from the Reformed Church in an effort for Arminians to preserve human responsibility and thereby to protect the goodness of God. This is a very tricky balance to have, but it's a balance that all of us must pursue in our ministry. Fifth, we have seen how God has consistently advanced his church, often by figures far from the center of attention. We have here the picture of Perpetua and Felicitas, two martyrs that we read about very early in Historical Theology 1. These martyrs are named, but many others were not. But it is by the martyrs that the great witness of the church was spread throughout the Roman Empire, at least in great part. There's the famous saying that we briefly discussed in Church History 1, that by the blood of the martyrs, excuse me, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church plant the seed, and the church will grow. In historical theology, too, we've seen similar examples of often neglected figures who are actually quite significant in the development of Christianity. For example, global Christianity has been the massive story of the last century. The fact that the vast majority of Christians were once in Europe and North America, but now the majority has shifted, Uh, to what's often called the majority world of Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Much of that is done by the efforts of missionaries uh, from those indigenous cultures. And we do not even have English language works describing many of those individuals. God is obviously the one behind the growth of his church. It is his spirit that empowered the martyrs to be bold just as it is his spirit that empowered various peoples and nations to share the gospel. And so we need to remember what God has done and praise him for the use of all those many people that might not seem like much to the leaders of our society. A sixth point, I believe, particularly this semester, that we've seen how Christianity has an egalitarian impulse that can be further developed. We saw in historical theology one, the way that early Christians emphasized care for the poor and the outcast, and how new opportunities were provided to women uh, within the church context, even within the parameters laid out within the New Testament, which themselves can be heavily debated. Those impulses continued, oftentimes beneath the surface, throughout church history. So we have seen in this class Opportunities for women that were provided as a result of the Reformation, just as other Reformation principles might be inclined to limit opportunities to women, often accidentally, as, for example, through the closing of monasteries, which prevented women from having viable opportunities outside of marriage. We've seen egalitarian impulses among those who sought to have a unified church of various races and ethnicities. Just as we have seen the sins of prejudice and racism among Christians, even major Christian leaders, be used to reinforce hierarchy of races that is completely ungrounded in the Bible and is completely unjustifiable ethically. Christianity's egalitarian impulses must be further developed if we wish to do true justice to the vision laid out in places like Ephesians 2 of a church that is truly one, despite all created distinctions. Much related to that, a seventh point, Christianity is an increasingly diverse religion that has historically failed to successfully navigate diversity. We saw in historical theology one, how quickly the church reached places like India, um, and even China, long before Western missionaries arrived. This semester, we've seen that when those missionaries arrived, they were unable to uh, form a meaningful and significant union with those ancient Christianities. We explored the ways that white American Christians were complicit and oftentimes even overtly involved with the defense and expansion of the institution of slavery and of segregation. And yet, in the midst of that, we have also seen the growth of Pentecostalism as a movement primarily directed toward uh, and prevalent among social groups that historically were looked down upon by Europeans, uh, social, ethnic, and gender groups. Christianity has to deal with this paradox as time unfolds. As our diversity increases, our historical baggage for failing to navigate diversity becomes ever more of a liability. I think much work will need to be done on this generation, on your generation of American Christians, as projections suggest that by 2050, there will be no majority race in this country. If you're going to be a successful church and successful in ministry, you'll need to navigate diversity far more effectively than my generation or the generations before me have been able to do. Finally, eighth. I think partly toward that end, Christian theology must wrestle with and develop a theology of the Holy Spirit in unprecedented ways. Of all the units that I taught in Historical Theology 1 and 2, you no doubt noticed that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was the least coherent. By that, I mean it was uh, least, it was perhaps most difficult, I guess I'll say to map out the differences and arguments and underlying assumptions of different theological groups. There's so much fragmentation on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that it is quite difficult to really know how to move forward. And yet the Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity. As explored in Historical Theology 1, the Spirit is consubstantial with the Father and the Son, having one essence with Father and Son. The Spirit is acting in all the ways that the Father and the Son are due to the doctrine of inseparable operations, that the three persons work as one. And so the failure to develop a clear and ecumenical theology of the Spirit is both a failure of the Church historically and an opportunity for the Church moving forward. In fact, much of the significant theological work being done today considers such questions as Pentecostalism and the Charismatic Gifts, as the question of revelation and how the Spirit is involved in our knowledge of God. And finally, the question of world religions, whether there might be an invisible mission of the Holy Spirit that somehow reveals a fragment of truth to other religions. Those are all very contentious theological doctrines, and ones that I'll cover quite extensively in other classes that you might take with me. But they're ones that should be on the forefront of your mind, particularly if you're in our missions concentration, where theology of the Holy Spirit is particularly particularly central. So, it's a bit of a whirlwind after a year of learning, but those are a number of important challenges that I believe these classes lay down. In addition to these specifics, I'd also highlight several general things. I hope by the end of this class that you've improved in your ability to read and analyze theological texts. That's been an important goal, It's being able to engage in primary sources uh, of these theological doctrines in a manner that you can understand where their arguments come from. Second, I really hope that you've improved in your ability to take these doctrines and these historical lessons and apply them to a ministry context. I once had a church history professor at Duke tell the entire class in his Historical Theology one class um, that whenever you stand into the pulpit, if you're able to interpret and understand the great tradition of Christian history, you are not standing alone. You are actually standing with 2,000 years of intelligent analysis of the Bible at your disposal. You are standing with the shared authority of the great tradition and all of the theologians who have gone before you. But if you do not know this tradition, and if you do not use it to help you to rightly interpret the Bible, Then when you step into the pulpit, you find yourself there, frightfully alone, at least from a human standpoint. Now, I don't mean to diminish the role of the Holy Spirit in preaching. Obviously, that is central. Rather, I intend to highlight the fact the Holy Spirit has helped prepare you for preaching by the act of illuminating the generations of Christians who have come before you, that they might have some insight into who God is, which we, as Christians today, might benefit from learning. So this task of taking tradition and spinning it into a ministry context is one that I hope you can actually use in whatever ministry form you find yourself in. If at any time, once this class is over, I can help you by pointing you to relevant elements of the tradition or by helping you take those elements and apply them in a ministry context, please let me know. If down the road you're no longer a student here and you're preparing for ordination exams and I can help you understand theology, again, please help me, uh, please let me know and I'll be happy to help. But these two classes, along with basic Christian doctrine, will serve as the core of our programs uh, to ensure that you understand theology. So if there's any area you don't understand, now's the time to let me know. One final reminder there, and then this episode will be done. I uploaded a number of key uh, dispute this semester handouts um, and key decision handouts for the last semester that walk us through say eight aspects of the doctrine of the trinity or three or four main areas of dispute in the doctrine of predestination i'm hoping that those might be good resources for you to download keep on your computer keep at hand So that sometime in the future, if someone comes up to you and is asking you to help them understand the doctrine of predestination, that you'll have a foundation to help jog your memory about all the things that we've discussed. A Google search is often going to find very simplified explanations of these ideas. We used Tulip as an example for that. But I think that we are called to do better in representing those who have gone before us so that we are not bearing false testimony. And I think that those who have gone before us have yielded insights that might be greatly beneficial to us today. So I hope that God has enabled me to leave you with a fair representation of those insights. And I hope that wherever I've gone astray there, God might lead you to forget the content of this class, though maybe not before the exam. Well, I enjoyed having you all this semester and many of you last semester Sorry it ended without us being able to talk face-to-face so that I could hear your ideas about what's important from Christian history, but do feel free to bring it up in a Zoom meeting or just drop me a little email with suggestions for things that I can improve or things that you found particularly important from Christian history. For now, though, that's all I've got. I wish you all the best on this final week of classes, and until next time, be well.